This is Corolla Digital. Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison. I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. And if you like what you're hearing, which, come on, let's face it, you do. Make sure to tell a friend. You can find us on iTunes, the app, or my site, AllisonRosen.com. Allison Rosen, Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison, with perfect good times never end. Allison Rosen, do wavy pants and pants again. Allison Rosen, Allison's your new best friend. Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. It is me, Allison Rosen, and I'm here with Nathan Rabin, former head writer for Onion AV Club, correct? Uh, Yes, yes. And author of the new book, You Don't Know Me, But You Don't Like Me. Yes. And someone I know from a weird show that we both did in Canada. Now, you were saying it was like, what, seven or eight years ago? Um, It feels that way. It feels like a long, long, long time Which is freaking me out because I didn't think it was that long ago, but you might be right. I think it was... Probably 2008 or 2009, right? Yeah, you know, Which it's, is about that long ago. It's kind of weird how you, how you kind of uh, – I guess when you're in college, everything is by semesters and by yes. years. And then you get older and I think a lot of everything is by relationships. Right. So I sort of think – like it was before I met my wife and that was like 2009, uh, like two years before that. So maybe, maybe seven years or so. And that's was, so funny that you say that because as I was going to sleep last night, I was trying to remember – what was going on in – I was thinking about this interview and I was trying to remember that show and I was remembering what was going on in my life during that time. And I was like, who was I involved with or hoping that something was going to happen with? So, yeah, it is broken up by relationship. Oh, totally. That's yeah, funny. And I uh, <laughs> I refer to it as the worst television show uh, in the history of I the still, universe. OK. So let's explain yes. it. But then I want to jump into your book because okay. I, I read most of it last night and thought it was so great. OK. Oh, thank you. But that show yes. switched. Yeah. Have you, I know, I Where we put the kitsch in your television bitch. Oh, is that what – was that the catch A Kaz, I believe. Yeah. The, and again, okay. there's, oh, God. There's so oh, little God. that I remember about okay, it. OK. So the premise was yeah. – uh, well, now I remember at the end, they like we designed the perfect TV show, and they had animators put it together. I still haven't seen it. Yeah, I I, I, I watched all four episodes. You're and, lucky and that I gave you my, have yeah, them. And I gave uh, yeah, I gave my wife the caveat like this is really really bad. And my other show was like it was kind of fun. It like wasn't great, but it was sort of entertaining. See, like they, this is an abomination. They, this is like an abortion of a television program. They. So it didn't get picked up? <laughs> <laughs> the thing that was crazy, it aired for 16 episodes. Like really? On the, on the TV land of Canada. Wow. Um, why aren't we famous? Because <laughs> the show was absolutely terrible. And I wonder if you uh, got into it the way that I did. I got an email, uh, let's say, seven years ago. Yeah. And they're like, hey, would you like to do a show um, in Canada with like washed up celebrities? And I said, oh, God, yes. That's yeah, like my right. existential uh, reason for being. <laughs> so they're like, sure, that sounds great. And I remember when, uh, you know, they're trying to prep us. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, here's the thing. Like, you don't technically – you aren't technically legally allowed to work in Canada. We don't really have, like, work visas for you or right. anything. So here's the thing. When you go to customs, you don't necessarily have to lie to customs. Just don't tell but the But you truth. don't necessarily have to tell them the truth. And I remember thinking at that time, like – this is kind of like a Midnight Express scenario. <laughs> like I'm, I, I will be – I think lying to customs officers is yeah. like a crime in mm-hmm. every country and even in Canada, you know. Uh, so yeah, I remember uh, flying up there and it was like a very rocky flight and I was a little a little inebriated. Mm-hmm. I, think, I seem to remember it being like a tiny, tiny uh, airplane as well. 
and then just being sort of terrified that the yeah. uh, that the uh, that I get busted busted at customs for being an illegal uh, crappy uh, television show panelist. Do you remember what your cover was going to be? Because mine was, and this is the one that was suggested. I'm here for meetings. <laughs> with, <laughs> that was mine. Well. I was I was going to pitch shows. Yeah, with the they gave us a name of some company that we were going to be there having meetings with though just say you're here meeting with like whatever their mtv not much music but i forget what it was yeah but i don't even think i had to say that i don't think that i had to tell anyone but i know that i was very nervous going through customs (laughs) (laughs) generally when you are uh asked to lie to people in uniform that's always terrifying but i don't think that that is unusual like every story i hear of people going to work in canada involves that pretty much it's all black market i think so yeah because i think that yeah, I, think I know that I've heard, and, I've heard Adam show stories and <laughs> exactly. Wow, the, the shadowy dark. Uh, and right. who, who are who are your celebrities on your show? Okay, well, so wait, I feel <laughs> let's, we let's, still also, let's also put uh, let's put uh, quotes the around word, that. Yes, around the word celebrity. Yeah, <laughs> but we still need to explain to the listener the premise of the show. <laughs> so it was a bunch <laughs> of neither of us even understand. Like that's was, that's why it was such a bad show. I was confused. It was like, what is this about? Right. Who's involved? Everyone why? was very nice, though. They were. They were very nice. It was a bunch of or like a handful of commentators, pop culture commentators, which is like you, kind of like me. best week ever kind of stuff. Right, and then one kind of washed up celebrity. And then a host who kept going <laughs> off prompter and they their their comment to him kept being like too much Casey Kasem because he'd be like, I'm coming in at number 10. Yeah. And then I remember they'd be like, just stick with the prompter because he kept – and actually I understand that though. Yeah. I understand the desire to put your own spin on it but it wasn't working when he would do it. Um, so I think that each show had a theme, right? Yeah. It was like um, – well, I'm, I know – like let's say one, uh, inappropriate ones, relationships. Well, the ones like the that. ones that I remember uh, very vividly. <laughs> one of which was uh, it was about cars and it was about cool right. cars and funky cars and let's count down like the coolest, most iconic cars. Of, I think uh, I was in that one. Seventies and eighties and nineties, um, and that was a weird one for me to be in because I don't know how to drive. Oh, which makes me a very very strange uh, individual. And remember the guest on that was you know not a celebrity per se. I think uh-huh. she was like a like race car oh, driver. Yes. And, okay. Oh yes. Oh. And she was like a mechanic. She's and she, been on. She, she totally talked like. Uh, like a, she was like a Lily Tomlin character. She basically. had a belt made out of a seatbelt. She had a daughter yes. named Carol, named after Carol Shelby. Yes. She's been a guest on CarCast, which is a podcast we have here. Oh my god! And I kind of wanted to like find her and be like, "Remember me from that thing in Canada?" But then I thought, "Where's that really going to go?" <laughs> yes, I remember that. Um, it, we, JJ Walker was on an episode. He was. He was, was on the one about uh, about like uh, standout. Breakout characters, right? And that was really, really interesting because uh, he was—he was an interesting guy. I mean, he's one of those kind of like Zelig-like figures. Where yes, he's done everything, and you—he kind of has a sort of sad, melancholy presence. I actually read his uh, memoir uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting. I mean, it's kind of self-aggrandizing, and he's very conservative. Um, yeah, um, but and- my God, he's led such an interesting life. And you know, kind of once you get him warmed up, he tells you some very, very entertaining stories. Right. I don't he, think he told yeah. them on the show, though. No, and then the, and he was also like, "You got to pay me a lot of money to say dynamite. Like, I'm not going to yeah. put on the pork pie hat. I'm not going to say dynamite for like right. under under five thousand um, dollars." 
And then the, the one that really made a really big impression on me was uh, <laughs> Eric Estrada. Was yeah, the, it was the day uh, was, before was, I got yes. there, sadly. Eric Estrada was the uh, – he was the uh, guest for the uh, cop show thing. Mm-hmm. And he was the most manic person I have ever seen. Uh, like I got onto the set. You know, it's like a Canadian television show. So it's kind of you know small and kind of intimate. And It was the same set where I think the guy who does the commercials for the Gazelle – yeah. Tony, whatever, like where he had filmed that. Totally, totally. That, that I, it, I seem to recall, like they had all the sorts of like po- uh, posters and pictures of like all of these like crappy infomercials. Mississauga. That were all that were all taped there. Um, yeah, and I remember going in there and uh, talking to the woman, the producer, and uh, I'm like, oh, it's, it's really cool to be doing a TV show with Orchestrata. Uh, she's like, yeah, yeah. He's really proud of uh, you know, his work as a policeman. And I'm like, yeah, you know, chips. <laughs> Big hit in the '70s. Everybody knows that. He's like, no, no. He's he's a real police officer. Like he he was on this reality show uh, with a bunch of other celebrities, including Latoya Jackson. Wow. Uh, and Jack Osborne only lasted uh, six episodes, astonishingly enough. <laughs> um, and the idea was that you know, the celebrities being police officers. <laughs> Nothing weird or creepy or wrong about that. Right. And he really, really got into it to the point where, like, he had to fly back to, like, do the night shift in Virginia. Uh-huh. Um, and literally, uh, you know, within 30 seconds of, like, encountering him, not even being introduced to him, he was, like, regaling one of the people who was working on the show. And he would just, like – he would have you in his sights and he would seize upon you like like an antelope and then he would, right. like, leap. And then you'd be uh, stratasized. Um, <laughs> stratasized. So he was, uh, yeah, so he just kind of, um, I guess he was like making a joke with somebody on the staff there. And he goes and grabs me and, you know, hugs me. And he says, you know what you should do? You should get a, you should get a, um, a toupee just like me. I got this crazy toupee. <laughs> and then he started, I don't know why I'm doing like a generic Mexican voice there. I don't actually, I don't Is remember. That not how his voice I don't was? remember what uh, Eric Estrada's uh, voice sounded like. That works for me. But then he started pretending that his hair was a toupee uh-huh. and doing like wiggling it back and forth <laughs> and wiggling it back and forth. And we're like, okay, this is really weird. Like, you're violating my personal space. And you haven't even spoken to me. And you're (laughs) Eric Estrada. And so after that, we kind of went and and started talking to him. You know, and he was very excited to talk. uh, Big talker. Um, There was kind of like six degrees of Eric Estrada thing where everything (laughs) could be traced back to Eric Estrada. You could be like, oh, I really saw the movie Citizen Kane. He's like, well, Citizen Kane, I was going to remake it. I was going to be the star of it. They said, you're the Orson Welles of 1979. (laughs) Like anytime anybody mentioned it, I was on that show. Robert Blake said, you're the best actor I've ever seen. Um, So we started talking to him about his job as a police officer. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm working on the – I'm working on child porn and like uh, child pornography via – the internet. And you know how it is, you know, these guys, they start off, they're just jerking off to, uh, to Playboy magazines. And before you know it, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> and then Eric Estrada proceeded to uh, do a very crude mime of somebody violating a very small child. And I was like, oh my God, that is so, and this, and yeah, this is all literally within like four minutes. Now, if you are to pantomime that, yeah. does it just mean making your hands closer together than a full size person? It's like a, <laughs> Yeah, okay. it's it's kind of yeah. That there's a much smaller, there's, there's, there's a smaller no, there's, thing you're violating. There's no way to talk about Eric Estrada miming sexual violation of a small child. And yet I'm getting to witness a rendition of it. No, I know. If it's, only uh, the listeners could see. Yeah, this. but I'm I'm no I'm no Eric Estrada, who was no, the top no. the top you're... television star of the 1970s and the yeah. 1980s. Uh, Telenova super genius. So that was this very 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 surreal experience. I remember, it was the yeah. whole thing. 
thing was, well, I actually, I, I got sick while I was there. So my whole thing was cut with feeling like hell yeah. and not being able to appreciate Toronto at all. Um, although everyone kept telling me that, is it codeine or Vicodin is legal there? It's like over the counter. Oh. Um, I didn't, I didn't partake of it though. Now, but... Dr. Dell tells out of school, um, I rode back with uh, Jimmy Walker uh-huh. and he's like, hey, can you stop by a pharmacist? Uh, they've got some stuff here. Uh, <laughs> that they don't have in the states, right? And I don't think he was talking about you know brands brands of potato chips. No, uh, although so. they do have those ketchup chips. Yes, but, but I doubt but, that's what but those are. Kind of disgusting, but it was such a sketchy show. I remember really one weird, of them was yeah. about uh, well, because we did no preparation, we had no idea what we were talking about. I remember they gave us lists of shows. That's when I realized yeah. that I have a huge crush on Alan Alda, circa Mash era. Yeah. And I think I watched Bewitched. That's about all I remember. Oh, <laughs> superpowers, special powers, superpowers. That was probably one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, also, the someone, the guy who stutters from Buffy, which is probably not how he describes is that himself. Brendan? Yes. No, there we go. He was there. Uh, oh, I for a second I I had like I had the other stars in my grasp, but not important. Anyway. Um, yeah, they emailed me and asked if I wanted copies of a show, and I couldn't decide which episodes I want, and then I missed my window to ever <laughs> get them, because the next time I wrote back, the email bounced back to me. Oh, wow. So, I don't know. So, you actually have copies of this. I have. I, I, yeah, I think I, I think I might have burned them at some point. I mean, I got... And the producer who actually sent them to me, like, I'm just going to warn you, like, you probably think they're really bad. Like, they're much worse than <laughs> you anticipated. And there were moments like... Uh, Was that Sarah? Yes, and she was she was great. She was great, and yeah. she could kind of totally see through uh, the sort of ridiculous endeavor that we were all doing. I also really liked that guy Mark, who was gay, though I had a crush on him. Or rather, let me rephrase that: I had a crush on him, just slight. I just was like, oh, he's. And then I realized, wait a minute, how did I not realize how gay he is? But I was making out with him the entire time. I, sh- I know <laughs> I- he was like, like he performed in a drag band. Wow, I was like, maybe he's just. <laughs> maybe he's super just, liberated. Maybe he's just in an experimental phase yeah, of his life. Yeah, he just enjoys cross-dressing but and I remember, gay pride. But I remember stuff like uh, we did a uh, show on television, on uh, cops. Mm-hmm. And I literally have maybe watched three cop shows over the course of my life. And they would ask specific questions. And Kaz would be like, so, Nathan, that, uh, <laughs> that Officer Munch on uh, Law & Order had some crazy times. What were some of your favorite moments from Officer Munch on Law and & Order? Oh, yeah. And I would get the, you know, the, uh, and that really isn't even the burlesque of his voice, that's actually no that, yeah and everything was was great yeah and i would just get uh my eyes glazed over and i like there was that episode where he caught those cops and <laughs> or the criminals and then he said that thing and then the music went on and it was dick wolf um and then after that we literally like, we all just cornered the producer and like none of us have any idea what we're talking about if you yeah. ask us specific questions about stuff like we won't be able to tell you anything right. because like we're none of us are prepared and this is a terrible show so if you just like keep it on the surface then like maybe <laughs> we can you know paddle around for an hour and not do right. ourselves but if you ask anything of us uh, it will be yeah <laughs> it will be and you'll be brutally 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 disappointed and yet i still don't think we are the reason it wasn't good mm. No, I felt like my uh, I added to the awfulness of it <laughs> by not being prepared. But I don't know. I just in my mind, I, I feel like I just look like a giant marshmallow. You know, they say television adds ninety or hundred pounds. They do say that, don't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, I felt like it was part, it was part of the grand gestalt. But I also kind of just like being parts of things that are kind of weird and disreputable. I mean, I had a uh, that was certainly that. Wasn't it snowing there? My memory is there was snow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I got an email. God, many years back, that was like, would you like to ghostwrite a hip hop manual for some California teenagers? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> Don't even ask me about the money, as long as it's weird and like 
kind of sketchy and you know in this like uh this nighttime world and then i'm all aboard <laughs> well then <clears throat> that is <laughs> excuse me perfect segue into your book where you um became you embedded yourself so to speak with fish and with insane clown posse with their followings but first let me just give uh, give this book a compliment so i was reading it Aww. last night and it was you're such a good writer and it's so poignant in spots and just really i feel like kind of hits at that transcendence that good writing can and it, it i i loved reading it and i was so moved and it just made me realize i feel like so much of the reading that i've been doing lately is utilitarian in nature like news articles or very straightforward nonfiction and it just reminded me of why i fell in love with with words in the first place if it's been so long since i've read something that touched me that way so kudos no thank you that's that's really really nice you know i was worried that i had screwed up and i had written a book that would destroy my career and be unpublishable why because you're so honest about things going awry in the book well that's part of it i mean part of it was i signed on to write a much much different book than the book that i ended up writing uh, my agent actually told me at one point like you know if, if your first book had done a lot better the whole idea of like you going crazy and having adventures might be commercially viable mm-hmm. um it didn't. Uh, you need to, you know, pass the who gives a fuck test. Uh, you need to write about something that is of interest to people uh, outside of your readership, outside of people who are interested in you. Um, Was it, you? Is that before or after Fish and Insane Clown Posse were part of it? Like, that was uh, that was uh, right before that. Okay, um, like initially, were you gonna write? Because you because it was gonna originally was gonna be because it was gonna be about fish originally. Uh-huh. That was like the first chapter that I wrote, the, like the sample chapter. It was gonna be about me having this glorious summer where I followed fish and traveled the country and fell deeper and deeper in love uh, right. with, with the woman who is now my wife. And yeah, so the whole book kind of. Throughout, you chart your relationship with this woman, the woman who's now your wife. Right, right. She – and it was so uh, so interesting. She was a fish fan in college. By the time you guys were together though, she was kind of – that was kind of behind her, right? Totally, But yeah. you were becoming more and more, if this is accurate, obsessed with her. Oh, totally. And totally. Want, I love that. Like you wanted to Photoshop yourself into her memories because I totally, I totally get that idea because I used to do this a lot You know, because I was a journalist for years, this thing of – when you like someone and they are into something, you want to get into it too, but not in a bandwagon fan way. In a, I'm going to do it from a journalistic perspective, which totally absolves me of like, I'm not being a creepy follower. I'm not becoming obsessed. I'm not turning into you. I'm I'm bringing like a clinical eye to this thing. And then you control it though. Well, you provide yourself with a cover. You yeah. have a professional cover and you can say, I'm just here as an observer. Right. I'm just here – to get a story. Um, and originally, that's kind of how I approached it. Um, and originally, again, my idea uh, was going to be just fish. And then I uh, sent my chapter to uh, the editor. And they said, well, we really like this idea. But we don't know if there's a book just be written about fish in 2010. <laughs> what if you write about a bunch of different Why am I taking sick delight in that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, uh, why are you taking sick delight in that? I think it's what you talk about at the beginning, this sort of knee-jerk anti-fish stance that so many of us take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can totally see that. Um, and that's totally legitimate too. I mean it would have been a much different book if it had just been about fish. Um, and gradually uh, kind of what happened was it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he said like what if you do like a – 
couple of different subcultures. So the first that came to mind was Insane Clown Posse mm-hmm. because uh, I had just become obsessed with their Miracles video. My wife uh, was a grad student at Brown at the time, and she didn't have uh, television. So we just had YouTube, and we would watch the Miracles. <laughs> the cornerstones of our early relationship <laughs> were uh, Jersey Shore and watching the Miracles video over and over and over again. So when they're like, hey, what if you cover other subcultures? I said, insane clown posse. Like, I want to go to the Gathering of the Juggalos. Like, this is something that I need to be a part of. And it's weird that I wasn't into it before because that's kind of my niche is writing about stuff clowns? that's weird. Well, stuff that's weird. The clowns. Yeah. The clowns of popular culture. The, the, <laughs> right. the clowns of the industry. You know, the clowns of the film world. Um, the scrubs. The juggalos <laughs> of, uh, of film and music and literature right. and all of these things. Uh, yes. I'm the juggalo chronicler. Um so that was really, really interesting to me. And then I just got ahead of myself and I had like all these ideas that I could have added to the book and been really interesting. But also in hindsight, it seemed incredibly wasteful and self-indulgent. So I'm Such like, oh, as? well, I'm like, I will go on the Kid Rock Chillin' the Most cruise and the Jam Cruise and the Disco Biscuits Camp Bisco Festival in upstate <laughs> New York. Um, and I went on all of those endeavors. Um, and I guess theoretically they were useful because they gave me a good background information for that but i wasn't able to uh penetrate it you know i wasn't able to find the story i wasn't able to right. what, find the why connective do you think tissue that was? i think because i was on the outside looking yeah i think i was still pretty uh i was very self-conscious i think about you know uh not being able to write the book mm-hmm. about the book being a mistake about you know that i had so much failure and i'd written and spent so much money and you know <laughs> I kind of justified it uh, to myself by the saying – The failure because at this at this point where you are – you're already in debt, right? Yeah. I was pretty – and I spent an entire summer uh, following fish. I went to like nine or ten shows. I was out for two weeks. It cost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And I looked at my notes and I looked at what I had and I had nothing. Do you think some I of that – I literally could not write anything about it. Does any part of that – this sounds like judgment. It's not. It's a right, genuine right. question. Have to do with the fact that you were doing drugs at the shows? No. No, not really. Um, I think it was more to do with the fact that everything was mediated through my through my wife's experience uh-huh. and that I was there and I was seeing everything through her and she was seeing everything through the lens of her past and her history. And, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to graduate from college, you know, to be uncertain, to wonder what the future holds. Harder than anyone – harder than anyone is open about, I feel like. It wasn't yeah, – yeah. for me, I, it was very hard to figure out where – almost like you talk about being on – I forget which drug it was, but all of a sudden, like the seat numbers where it's like one of five, one of four, one of so three, Molly. and you're like, there, yeah, there, there's no sense to these random numbers. That's how the real world felt for me after college for a while. Oh, totally. And, you know, my wife, <laughs> my wife is getting her uh, fourth degree. Uh, now she's getting her master's in. Uh, so she's cracked the real social world. Work. Yeah. <laughs> so that was it. Was so um, so it was just this very weird, very kind of melancholy time for I just bought a home, mm-hmm. uh, Where? literally the day in Chicago, Albany Park, which was this huge, huge, huge thing for me. Yeah. You know, um, you know the days like I wanted, you know, a, a nice place for her uh, to live. So I think that had the greatest influence on me, and also just that I, I didn't know what I was doing, mm-hmm. and I'm. <laughs> I kind of assumed or hoped that I would develop all of these journalistic skills uh, once I got the assignment and that I would grow into the assignment and I would you know, become this fearless you know, reporter. And that just didn't happen. And I had a lot of difficulty talking to people um, to the point where it's like I would like 
Tanya, could you could you could you ask those people if they would talk to me about fish? And it was just really really sad, you yeah. know. And I just I felt so outside and so not up to up to the task. And yeah, I kind of felt like a fraud, uh, and I kind of felt like a failure. I quick interjection. Right. Uh, when I worked for the OC Weekly, there was this romance writers of America, romance writers of California convention in Brea, and. <laughs> Gary's laughing. The birthplace of romance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I convinced my editor that this would be such a great opportunity for me to go there. Uh, and I think I had David – you mentioned David Foster Wallace in your book. I think I had that in my mind too. Like right, this is right. real like first person. Or George Plimpton is somebody who I, I thought of as guide for a long time. As I thought about like having a bracelet that said, what would George Plimpton do? Yeah. Because in a weird sort of way, it is kind of a plimpton endeavor right. uh, about subjects that George Plimpton would never uh, probably cover himself. Yeah. So I, I got there to the hotel. It was just this very straightforward um, – convention and the you know their big thing was like people think that we just eat bonbons all day but we don't we're actually writers but there was nothing i felt like i i could not penetrate that world cuz right, i wasn't right. one of them and yeah i ended up never writing it and feeling like that whole thing was a waste and feeling like there was something wrong like i just ro- i remember roaming the halls of the hotel alone one night and yeah just feeling like such a failure that i couldn't do that thing that i'm able to normally do when I when as a writer. Right, right, right. And I remember like looking at my uh, my notes for my first trip to the gathering, which was really only like two days. Mm-hmm. Um, two very, very eventful days. Kind of began with uh, Ron Jeremy uh, <laughs> judging the Miss Juggalette contest. Right. Um, and then kind of climaxed with the Tila Tequila incident. Now, did he really put his finger in that girl's butt? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do, a, do, do I imply as much? At, yeah. yeah, at me like, what? Yes, there's a moment where a girl says, put your finger in your butt, hey, what in my butt, what's your name, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she's, that's, she's if, miming that. Oh, okay. She's, so there she's, wasn't she's, actually she's a performing. In butt. She's performing. Uh, no, she was. Okay. She, there, there was no hand in the butt. I was, it was unclear to me. <laughs> um, but I looked at this, uh, like this mass of notes, and I could get nothing out of it. And part of it was just that I was looking down on these people, yeah. you know, and there was like this mug, you know, jokey. And I was like, really, is that is that who you want to be as a writer and as, as, as a human being? Somebody who like makes fun of juggalos and somebody who, you know, takes cheap shots at people right. who've had nothing but cheap shots uh, taken at them. So, I, yeah, it really wasn't until this second year following them. When that detachment uh, kind of broke down and it broke down because like my life started to fall apart and, and everything became very vulnerable. And how how can you can, open to... can you go into that a little bit? Okay, in what in what ways did your life start to oh, fall sure. down? Oh sure. Well, I um I had, a, <laughs> well I, had, uh, I had a well I had a couple of good years you know um, writing books and, and my first book you know did, I got a nice advance for um, but then I bought a home and uh, in 2011 I um. I had a tax bill that was uh, – took up my entire life savings. So I went from being somebody who had, uh, you know, a nice little nest egg, some security. And I grew up very, very poor. I mean, mm-hmm. I grew up in a group home for mostly disturbed adolescence. I had like a very rocky, very traumatic yeah. childhood. So money was always kind of an important thing and it was always, you know, kind of a crucial thing. Um, and so when this book started spiraling out of control financially and then, you know, I um, – <laughs> Halfway through this whole thing, strange twist, uh, I got a direct message uh, on Twitter from Weird Al. (laughs) 
And he said, of all the writers in the world, I have decided that I want you to tell my story. Will you write my book? That's so nice and Oh, weird. my God. I was, it, was, it, was, it was staggering. And he was my childhood hero. Like I wanted to be Weird Al when I was seven years old. I had a, I had a band called Nathan and the Rockers. Um, yeah. <laughs> we were very, very derivative of the, of the song stylings of, of Weird Al Yankovic. Um, so that was something where it was such – I guess an honor to a certain extent. No, it was it was an honor. Sounds it affirming. Was, it was it was amazing, but it was also like I can't do this. Like yeah. I'm writing one book that I can't write that has cost me more than my advances. That I, I fear that like they might reject it and like want the rest of the advance back. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm signing on to write the second book, which also is, is exciting. But I don't know if I can write it. I've and never written a coffee table book before. Um, were you also working at the AV Club? At the I, same was, time? I was. I was the as a you know the head writer of the AV Club. At Do you a time not have where, to go into the office there? Is that? Oh no, you would. You did. You did. It was very. It was very intense, and it was very. You know. Yeah, uh, it sounds like a yeah, job. I, a lot. Yeah, it was. It was a time where you. Were, yeah, it was just it, it. And it's a job that should take one hundred twenty five percent of you. Like you should be exhausted and mm-hmm. dispirited and just like a corpse of a human being at the end of the day. And I was for the most part. <laughs> and how the how the fuck I ever managed to like finagle to, to cram four books into like this non-existent hole right. uh, is kind of amazing, kind of astonishing. And even now, like, you know, I'm promoting this book and it exists in the world and people can purchase it. It still feels kind of weird. And like I kind of got away with something, um, even if I had to endure um, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of <laughs> – a whole lot of uh, torment uh, kind of on the way there. Well, it's interesting because so much of the book is about your experience struggling with writing the book. Right, right. Which I found really compelling. And I think there's a pretty rich history for that kind of – for that kind of self-conscious writing um, in the world. But I could imagine – that's a hard sell. Was that part of hard sell or did you not really tell them that's what was going to happen? No. I mean the thing is I have an amazing editor um, and I love, <laughs> I love him so much and I almost feel like he's kind of ruined me for all the other editors <laughs> because he's just like I have such faith in you and I have such belief in you and I know the story that you're telling is a worthwhile story and it's a good story and it's a true story and you know, uh, I will give you all the time and all the space you need. Uh, in order to tell it uh, to the best of your abilities. And the first thing that I sent him, um, <laughs> the first 25 sample pages that I sent him were from a passage about uh, Bethel Woods and, you know, the sort of crazy uh, psychedelic experience I had uh, at the home of Woodstock. And he was like, this is great. Like, I love this. Like, I have faith in you that you'll be able to to turn in this book and complete it. And I think if I hadn't written The Big Rewind, if I hadn't written so extensively about myself, uh, in my other writing, I think it would have been a little harder mm-hmm. uh, of a sell. I think I kind of um, have established myself as you know somebody who exposes his soul. And even though that wasn't originally part of the plan, that was something that, yeah, ended up being at the heart yeah. of it. All right. I'm going to go full on James Lipton mode and read a passage from it. I, oh, I, I never do this. Oh my I'm God. uncomfortable doing I'm this so almost. But it just – I thought particularly for listeners of this show, it would uh, mean something to them, which is um, – after a lifetime of feeling different, I started to wonder if we're all secretly the same. I began to suspect that what divides us isn't as important as what unites us. We all hurt and ache and bleed and struggle and love. We just listen to different music and align ourselves with different subcultures while we do so. I love that because oh, that's kind you. of my contention is that everyone feels like a freak and feels like, oh, if only I could be 
if only I knew what to say and if only I hadn't said that dumb thing and if only I could be cooler and if only I could blah, 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 like everyone else, then things would be better. But Oh, totally, yeah. And the people who don't admit to that are, I don't know, are they megalomaniacs? Are they, like, or do, are there people who actually don't go through life feeling self-consciousness? That is a really good question. I think that is one of – yeah, I think if you're not feeling – if you're not trembling with anxiety <laughs> and self-conscious at least part of the time, there's probably a little bit of the sociopathy. Right. Um, yeah, and I feel like that's one of the reasons why I'm happy with the book was I was able to make it really human uh, and really squirmy and vulnerable. Um, I, I I love it. Um, okay. So I have – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay three questions out okay. at you. I can dig it. One, I'm wondering um, – why you left your position at AV Club. Yes. That's one. Uh, and then two, and I don't normally stockpile the questions either. <laughs> okay. about, I, uh, can you tell me more about your childhood and growing up in a group home? And then three, in the book, at a certain point, you're diagnosed with bipolar, um, by, with being bipolar, with bipolar disease. I don't know what the – Bipolarity. <laughs> right. You're bifurcated. Um, and uh, can you talk more about that? Bipolar disorder. Uh, well, yeah. I mean I was working for the AV club for 16 years, which is a very, very, very long time uh, to work for anybody. Yeah. And you know, I'm really, really proud of the work that I did there. I really loved you know, the work that I was doing up until the very end. Um, but it changed very, very uh, dramatically. Over the course of when I started there, it was kind of, you know, this um, pirate ship of an operation, right. you know, it was like all these guys that I came up with in Madison and, you know, there was this real homemade uh, kind of quality to it. And um, that was not the case towards the end. It started to feel something much, much bigger or something that didn't really uh, belong to me anymore. It kind of felt like it was something Was that... there a big change of personnel? No, I mean, I think it was just, the culture changed. That was kind of more, more than anything. It was mm-hmm. just kind of this gradually things became more and more. Um, you know, and part of that's just publishing. It's a really, really hard business. People right. are terrified. It's a scary, scary time. Um, yeah, but at the same time, I kind of felt like I wanted to change. I wanted to do something new. I wanted to kind of find another home. Mm-hmm. Um, I was ready to move on to like the next uh, phase in my life. And well, this they was don't review this inter- podcast, so I question their judgment. <laughs> <laughs> Tried to get them to do so. I know, uh, but Thank yeah, you I, I'm not sure. Effort. I'm not sure that I had uh, a whole lot of power there towards the end. Um, but uh, yeah, and this is this is just a really exciting opportunity to work with like some of the people that like I, I trust and respect. Uh, you know, and, and love more more than anybody else. You know, some of my favorite writers and editors in the whole world. And you know, Pitchfork is an amazing organization. Oh wait, is that where? To be, yeah, I, did, I didn't know. Yeah, we're going to be the uh, we're going to we're going to be the new uh, we're going to be the new uh, film site uh, from from Pitchfork. And I've always loved writing about music. I've always loved writing about comedy and podcasting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a cultural omnivore. But cinema has always been my heart. You know, and and this is an exciting opportunity to like really grow as a critic and as a writer and as an you know uh, a writer of substance. Did you go to University of Chicago? No, I went to University of Wisconsin. Okay, yeah, I remember because you because my ex boyfriend, who is a film critic, is a friend of yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh Rothkopf. Yeah, Yeah, I was trying to remember how how you guys knew each other. Was that just from? Chicago. Okay. I mean, he, yeah, it was film critic, uh, film critic type. We were the uh, we were the tallest uh, <laughs> film critics. There were like the uh, the four of us: me, Keith, and Scott, and Josh. We were all like six three. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, but this is exciting, and this is an opportunity to you know, it's nice to have a new thing, and it's nice to go to a different building and a different neighborhood and eat at a different restaurant. Yeah, and, you know, change is good and change is scary, and I loved. 
being at The Onion. And that was such a huge part of my identity. And, you know, I wasn't just somebody who wrote for The Onion. It was, I was Nathan at The Onion. I wasn't mm-hmm. just my email address. That was like my <laughs> existential identity. And it was kind of exciting to be like, I'm going to go out there and see what it's like to be Nathan not from The Onion anymore. Right. You know, and just kind of like stand out on my own. And it's it feels great, you know. I'm very, very excited about it. And it launches uh, on July 10th. Yeah. That, that it's is... going to be all sorts of good stuff. That's very cool. Okay, your childhood. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I, uh, I had a very traumatic childhood. Uh, my mother abandoned me uh, when I was about two years old, uh, but not before taking me on a crazy, uh, like, kind of cross country tour. Uh, I guess the technical term would be kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, she sort of kidnapped me. From, uh, from where had you guys been living? We had been living in uh, St. Louis, and uh, my dad got custody of me and my older sister. And she took that pretty badly. Uh-huh. So she decided to abscond uh, with me. I think she went to Texas and then to California. And then eventually um, they found a bounty hunter. Um, my father hired a bounty hunter to get me back. And wow. he showed me this letter of, like from his archives. And it was really, really crazy, you know, um, to think of, you know, a year and a half old me, <laughs> you know, as like the bounty that right. a bounty hunter is chasing after. Um, so <laughs> then uh, I lived with my dad, uh, who was this really wonderful, sweet guy. He went to University of Chicago. Um, yeah, had big dreams, always like kind of the golden child of the family. Mm-hmm. But things didn't really work out for him. And he had multiple sclerosis and wasn't really able to hold on a job. And yeah, um, wasn't really able to take care of me or my sister. And what is that your biological father? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, because um, you have your half-brother in the book. I do, I do, and I've, I've only met him once. Um, but he, my dad, And he's a juggalo? He is, yes. He was 14 <laughs> years ago. Uh, he might be an ex-juggalo at this point. Right. Uh, I, I would have to ask. Have to <laughs> we actually looked him up on Facebook. Um, but you guys share a mom? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that we do. And one of the first things he said to me was, uh, you know mom's crazy, right? <laughs> I did not need <laughs> did not need that information. It was not new information for right. me. So I uh, so my dad wasn't able to take care of me or my sister. I was a very troubled adolescent. Mm-hmm. I spent time in a mental hospital. I lived with a foster family uh, for a month before they decided they were not so fond of the surly, belligerent uh, little monster. Uh, what I mean, what were what were the how how were you behaving at that point? Well, I was <laughs> I was a really bad teenager in the sense that I was like bad even at being uh, a, a juvenile delinquent. Like I was a really bad rebel. I was super passive aggressive. You know, I would call them sir and ma'am. I would oh, uh, I would I, I would skip school. Like the artful dodger. I would skip school to go uh, see movies. I would skip school to go to the video store and rent R-rated movies, and then I would go watch those R-rated movies after they went to bed. Uh, that doesn't it, sound that bad. No, these are all dumb kid stuff. But I think they're just like, okay, there's – you know, they, we both wanted to believe that we were better than what we are. I think they wanted to think like we're really compassionate and loving liberals. We're going to you know, provide a home to this troubled young person. Um, and I think I wanted to be like, okay, I can be the person they want me to be. I can be you know, uh, well-behaved and I can – at least put on a good front for a little while. You know, I kind of felt like, okay, there's something at my core that's kind of dirty and feral. Um, but maybe I can recreate myself and I can be like, you know, this wealthy, you know. Uh, How for, old were you? Uh, 14. <laughs> which which is the best time emotionally for like everything. That was the year that I went to a mental hospital. That was the year that I was kicked out of the foster family. That was the year that I um, started high school. That was mm-hmm. the year I started living in the group home for emotionally disturbed adolescents. Yeah. And then in a weird sort of way, that was, I mean, that was 
horrible in a lot of ways because you feel very alienated and you feel very isolated. I bet. And, you know, everybody that you live with, like, goes to the special school and they're all weirdos. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why I felt uh, a sense of affiliation with jugglers. They weren't just people who just kind of acted kind of weird. Like, they looked weird. Yeah. You know, they're kind of, like, misshapen and... All sorts of things. Like we looked – yeah, we were, we were a raggedy bunch, um, you know. And, and it wasn't even like we had that sense of community or, or inclusion. It was more like <laughs> you should hate yourself and hate everybody here for living in such a crappy place. And materially, it really wasn't that bad. But there was no getting over the fact that we all live there because our parents weren't able to take care of us or – decided not to take care of us or the court ordered uh, us to live there. Why did you end up in a mental institution? I was a very, very depressed 14-year-old. Um, and uh, again, I was a very passive-aggressive, uh, belligerent, would-be juvenile delinquent. So I would just sit at home and watch television 20 hours a day and just like shovel Kool-Aid into my gullet and cheap food late at night um, and just watch TV and be belligerent and not go to class and do all the things crappy kids do you just sound like an emo kid yeah i guess i kind of was you know and, and hindsight like god i should i should have played this up in high school <laughs> like i should have had friends and be like oh man you're so soulful you suffered so much <laughs> i would like to give you a hand job um, but that never happened man that never happened so one night i uh decided to try and kill myself oh okay yeah and this was a very half-assed like cry for help sort of suicide attempt where i like uh put down an entire bottle of caffeine pills and then I washed it down with grape Kool-Aid. And then uh, I watched the movie Stewardess School mm-hmm. uh, starring Sherman Helmsley and Donald <laughs> Most. Yeah, you tend to remember things that happen right after you try and kill yourself. Yeah. And I just, like shaved half of my head because I'm like, I don't know what to do. Um, Which half? I think – I'm not sure. I think it was the right one. Uh-huh. I was like, maybe, was, maybe there was some really prescient part of me. It's like, what will you look like when you're bald? Let's, let's get a, a sneak preview <laughs> as to what things will be like 20 years from now. Um, so I uh, – so it was a really, really half-assed suicide attempt and all it ended up doing was like making me throw up for hours and hours and mm. hours. But my dad – Did you feel energ- energetic before you threw up though? No, no, no. That's that's the maybe that's why maybe that's why I was yeah. throwing up so much because uh, my stomach was unsettled. Um, so yeah, so my dad took me to. So you told your dad. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, this is he your foster dad. Well. No, it's my my regular dad. Oh, okay. Yeah, my foster. I'm the foster family I only lived with for one month. Oh. Okay. Um, and my dad, I lived with uh, up until I was 14 years old. Um, and uh, yeah, he took me to see the doctor and he said it was going to be like a, an emergency room type situation i think i was pretending to have a uh, ear infection and when i got there the doctor was, was like well it's a different kind of doctor and i'm like what the and i should have noticed it was like wednesday it was like eight o'clock it's not generally like when you see the doctor right and i was like led to like his study and he was like stroking his chin and this might be my memory but like he had like, like uh, patches. Corduroy, corduroy patches on like the the flannel jacket and the, and the, and the pipe and the beard and like very professorial, and he's uh-huh. like, "So I, I understand that you've uh, like been undergoing some depression. Uh, like, seems like you might hurt yourself." And at that point, like, I was incapable of saying anything that wasn't sarcastic. <laughs> so I was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm a real danger to myself in the community. You better lock me up, doc." <laughs> um, you know, and you continue in that line of inquiry for twenty minutes, and they're like, "Okay." <laughs> now comes the part where we drag you away to the mental hospital, uh-huh. uh, which is what happened. Like, was to, that going to, to happen really... regardless? Um, you know, if I had made a better show, you know, if I'd been like, gosh, dad, I, I, I do have some problems, but I work on them myself and 
Like, I appreciate this perspective. Um, like, A, I never would have gotten there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if they, they would have believed me. But, but yeah, at that point, I was incapable of that. Like, right. all I could do was be obnoxious. All I could do was be sarcastic. <laughs> all I could do was, you know, afflict my uh, my unhappiness uh, out right. onto the world to try and throw it back to a world I was convinced had rejected me. Um, so, yeah, so I was dragged kicking and screaming. Really? Uh, so you were? Yeah. So, uh, tears streaming down my eyes. Uh, Straight from the pro- pro- professor guy's office? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, literally. I mean, there were two. Who two, dragged two, you? Like orderly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were, there were two, two very large. Awful. Two very Yeah, it was, it, was not, it was not a great moment right. uh, in my life. And then, yeah, I remember. Um, so they dragged you. Did they say, and now we're going to, um, what did they, like, what did you think was happening? Did you know? Yeah, I mean, I kind of thought, like, okay, I'm being dragged kicking and screaming by men into, like, a hospital. Like, mm-hmm. I'm getting fucking institutionalized. Like, there's no other way that this plays out. Um, and I remember vividly. Um, was your, and what was your dad doing at this point? He was looking on. And that was the thing that was, like, that must have just broke his heart because he's, he's a really good father. And he yeah. really tried. And he did it all by himself, you know. He, I didn't know my mother, stepmother. <laughs> Divorced, you know, when I was like uh, eleven or so, um, and I was just screaming profanity at him. Um, what you know, were you saying? It, you uh, I was just—I don't know. I, I was—I was expressing a lot of anger, right? Them, and I was expressing it at top volume uh-huh. using liberal uh, profanity. Um, and yeah, it was just this, this, this agonizing moment. And I remember uh, in the mental hospital, um, you know, you were forced to take a shower, and I remember thinking in the shower, and there was like an orderly. With the door open to make sure you don't kill yourself while you're taking a shower. I wonder why they um, force you to take a shower. I guess that's what they consider that part of being a sane person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they also want things to be hygienic and, right. and sterile um, and soul crushing. It's also part of part of breaking a person down, which is what well, I that's felt what like it, a that's lot sort of, of it what down. it sounds like. Oh, it was like it was you will awful. do things our way. Yeah. yeah, it was it was an abomination. Um, How long were you there? I was there for a month, wow. and I remember thinking very vividly like that first night there while I was taking a shower. Like everything that I accomplish will mean so much more coming from like this horrible bottom. And I remember thinking like, God, that's so delusional. Like you, there is nothing to say you will ever accomplish anything, let alone that like this will be the start of like Wait, glorious... when did you have that moment where you thought when I was, was when I was in, when I was when I was taking uh, when I was in the shower? I had that moment of like this will mean so much more. Uh, everything will mean well, so much right. more coming from this delusion. And I think a little oh. after that, I started okay. to be like. Check questioning, buddy. Yeah. Like, let's, let's let's not get too grandiose here. Yeah. It's not like you're gonna write some book about uh, <laughs> your experiences with mental illness or anything. Um, but at the same time, I felt like that was protective, and that if I didn't see this as a narrative and as a story that began with me being dragged kicking and screaming into a mental hospital and then led to something better or something that would give value or meaning to what I had just experienced, Uh then it just would have been crushing. It just would have been like I have failed on every conceivable level to the point where like I'm being kept by force from like interacting with other people Mm -hmm. because like I'm considered a danger to myself and to others. And I – yeah, I actually didn't leave until uh, the insurance ran out. Oh, wow. Yeah, like if I (laughs) had – if I had to get out by they didn't de- of so the- they didn't decide that you were ready to go. No, I mean, <laughs> in an astonishing coincidence, they decided that I was ready to go the exact day that my insurance ran out. Well, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're like, now that we had no longer been, and I remember that it was like a thousand dollars a day, and you slept on a cot, and you had, uh, you know, these basically, you know, microwave meals. Um, and I think maybe you saw a psychiatrist like once a week. That's it? Yeah. What did you do during the day? Just fam- uh, group therapy upon uh. group therapy upon group therapy. And again, it was kind of a way of like breaking you down and like saying kind of like insulting, you know, sort of 
Oh, I hate uh, aggressive that things. Shit. Yeah, I remember. God, yeah, I remember actually my first day there. Them making a list of like personality problems, like, and they encouraged the other people. And again, these were like twelve year olds and thirteen and fifteen year olds, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to like diagnose all the things that I had. And I had like fourteen. Yeah. Again. Yeah. This is this. Yeah. That was a very very strange day. Um, 14, what flaws that, that these people yeah, don't know that, you that, found? Yeah, that, that I, like, had. And everything was, everything, like, they had, like, a number system, and you had, like, point system and, and privileges and stuff. And, yeah, the whole bureaucratic element of it <laughs> made it even more kind of soul-crushing. Right. So, so, so for, and the irony of that, too, is that, like, the whole idea of me going to the mental hospital was so that I could repair my relationship with my dad. And then, um, literally, like, two days after I got out of the mental hospital, my dad fell down. Um, he punctured his lung. Uh, his ribs went through his lungs and he started bleeding internally. Mm. And they said if they'd waited like an hour longer, he would have died of internal bleeding. So that was, he spent like three months at a, a rehabilitation institute. Um, so I never lived with him again. So that was kind of the irony is it was there to fix a broken relationship that kind of became moot uh, afterwards right. because we didn't live together. I lived in this group home. Um, but in the group home, I, that's where I kind of developed uh, a very active imagination. You know, that's where I kind of found escape in music and books and television. Um, that's sort of where I started thinking of myself as a, as a writer uh, and, and, and an artist uh, and somebody, yeah, who could kind of transcend mm-hmm. uh, sort of sort of the grubby realm uh, from which I came. So, yeah, it was very, very useful for me. And when I was 15, I had a social worker. It was really amazing, Mary Lou Coyle. And she enrolled me in a class on gender roles and film noir and facets multimedia. And it was this transformative experience where I'm like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. And this is a movie from like 55 years ago, you know, like Gilda and uh, the Maltese Falcon. And it's so weird and like so sexy and subversive and like filled with innuendo and so kinky. And it was, yeah, it was this really wonderful experience. And were you going to a regular high school but yes, living in the group yes, home? Yes, that I was, which I, also was kind of like this, this cognitive dissonance of mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm, and also made me feel like I'm lesser than everybody they go to high school with. Yeah. Uh, which I think a lot of people feel, but when you're the well, only, you, but, but when you're you the only person in your, yeah, when you're the only person in the group home who like doesn't go to the special school, you don't feel special. You right. know, you feel like yeah, you're kind of in between worlds. And in hindsight, like I probably would have been better off going to the special school. But there was always this idea of like, yeah, you probably will go to college at some point. Uh, so. Were you free to come and go from the group home as you pleased? I mean, was it really just yeah, a place to yeah. live? But, and the other thing is, I worked at video. I got a job at. Blockbuster uh, when I was 16 years old. And this was in 1994 or 1992 uh, when a young filmmaker named Quentin Tarantino directed a film called Reservoir Dogs. And, you know, that was my favorite movie of all time when I was 16 years old. And I thought, oh, my God, working in a video store is the coolest thing ever. (laughs) And if I work in a video store, then, like, my life will be awesome. And that will be, like, the start of everything. And in a weird sort of way, that, that really was. I mean, I started working at a video store when I was 16. Um, and then I, when I moved to Madison, I started working at the Blockbuster there and I was, um, oh, I left Blockbuster and I started working for Four Star Video Heaven, which was this, uh, video store in Madison, kind of like this funky, gay, like bohemian, uh, video store. And that's where I met Keith Phipps, uh, who would go on to be my boss at The Onion. So you kind of can draw a pretty, a pretty 
and then my boss at the Dissolve as well. Uh-huh. So you can, yeah. So it's it's been a very, very interesting kind of uh, taking this journey with Keith, you know, from me being a video store employee and him being the early manager uh, to him being the editor at The Onion and then, you know, the founding director um, and creator of uh, The Dissolve. Um, and it, yeah, it all began with me applying for a job at Blockbuster Video. Uh, and I had such low self-esteem that I thought like, there must have been an in for me to get this job. It's like <laughs> it's too cool and too good. Like they, there must be some government program to like have mentally for like Ill, affirmative action. Get for you. mentally ill children uh, jobs in video stores uh, <laughs> as a way of like keeping them from hurting other people. Uh, um, so yeah, it all kind of it all kind of came full circle. Uh, and then the bipolar diagnosis. Yeah. So basically, my whole uh, experience that entire summer was very very. Um, kind of oscillating between these incredible extremes of joy and and delirium and feeling that the world was opening itself up to me and then just crushing, agonizing despair. I mean, right before I went on the fish tour in 2011, sort of the basis of a lot of the book, like I was in one of the darkest places emotionally that I'd ever been. I just felt completely removed from the world. I felt alienated from myself. Are you someone who – would you say that you tend to suffer depression? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm – yeah, I'm a big – (laughs) <laughs> I'm a big, big depressive. Uh, it's kind, of, kind, of, kind of hard to live my life that the life that I've had uh, and not wrestle with depression. Um, to say the name of one of my favorite podcasts, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So I kind of had these like very, very intense experiences, and then when I got home from Fish Tour in 2011, I was talking to my um, psychiatrist about them, and she said, "Well, it sounds like." what you're describing that you have probably a pretty mild form of, of bipolar disorder and it's weird at the time i was like no no that can't be right but at the same time i was also like i thought something very physically was wrong with me mm-hmm. i felt like i was gonna collapse to the ground i felt like you know my insides were were not working uh, i couldn't eat i couldn't sleep you know, standing uh, standing upright posed a lot of problems. <laughs> yes, and I, I pretty pretty dramatically failed to stand upright uh, at one crucial uh, juncture in the book. Um, so I definitely felt like there was something wrong with me. I just didn't really know what, what did it you think? was. What did you have an idea? I thought it, I thought it, it might have been multiple sclerosis. Oh, wow. uh, just because my dad had multiple sclerosis, yeah. and I was kind of at the age where you kind of get that. I worried that I was like becoming paranoid or, or, or paranoid schizophrenic or, or something like that. I worried that I was you know going to have paralyzing anxiety attacks. Um, I didn't really think uh, about bipolar. You know, I just kind of thought, those guys have all the fun. <laughs> um, but when she described it, I'm going, well, like, that kind of makes sense. And that does give, um, that does explain a lot of my decisions. And it does explain my complete lack of preparation. And, you know, this whole idea that I signed on to write an incredibly ambitious book and just kind of thought, I will throw myself out into the universe and the universe will be kind enough Uh to allow me to finish this book. Um, And I wonder what part of that was just uh, garden variety, terrible judgment and making (laughs) poor decisions and, you know, not being good at communicating with other people. And what part of that was the bipolar, you know? Um, And I still don't know to what extent I have bipolar. Um, I know the medication they gave me uh, has helped tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's something that's probably tremendously overprescribed. Uh, I think it's also pretty vague uh, as to ascertain what is or what is not bipolar. Yeah. But it did make a lot of sense and it did kind of inform both the experiences in the book and <laughs> the many, many, many mistakes uh, that kind of led to the creation of the book. Did you stay with your – so wait, is – 
the name of the woman in the book is that not her real name? No, no, it is it's not. not her real name. She requests, and then she chose her. Uh, she chose her uh, pseudonym. Cadence, I like that. Yes, yes. Um, did you stay with her throughout the the course of all this, or cause I know, or did you guys break up? No. What basically happened was the first summer that I followed Fish in 2010, we uh, we traveled together, and it was really nice in a lot of ways. You know, like I enjoyed seeing the sights, I enjoyed the shows, but again, it just was empty. I didn't get anything out of it. So for the second book, um, you know, we were broke. You know, she had to work a job um, she couldn't get out of, and even if she, you know, didn't have to, like. We couldn't afford it. Like we didn't have any money anymore. Like the uh, the tax bill swallowed up everything. Oh yeah. yeah. Question about that. Right. Had you not paid the year before or something? No. I mean, I think it was just I I I had one of those. Like I had written three books, so it was like I got like the last payment of one, and the second payment of another, and the first payment of another. So right. everything kind of coalesced into like this perfect storm. And I thought because I was spending such a ridiculous sum of money doing all of these experiences, that, be that, that would, yeah. yeah, that it would like. And then, you know, and then it'd be told like $9,000. And I'm like, what? <laughs> that, that's not how the world works. Like that's really crazy. And <laughs> so another thing kind of added to my feeling yeah. of feeling insecure. When I was working on the book here in Los Angeles, um, on my birthday actually, I was uh, in John Bermuda Schwartz's uh, garage uh, looking at – Box after box after box of nearly identical photographs of Weird Al Yankovic. Mm-hmm. And again, now that I think about that, probably might have contributed to my nervous breakdown as well. <laughs> that I literally like there You're was right, a period, there, there literally was a, was a period where I, I watched, I looked at you know, maybe thirty thousand photographs of Weird Al, and you know, <laughs> he's a very expressive person, and he was my childhood hero. But like that's that's kind of crazy making work. Yeah. Um, and while we were doing that, uh, John Bermuda Schwartz, uh, he's like, "Can I get you like an apple?" apple juice or something and i said oh yeah, yeah sure um apple juice is good and i spilled the apple juice all over the photographs and oh god actually coca-cola that got into my computer oh. and coca-cola um destroyed my hard drive and it's one of those things where god, fate uh, i was talking to the computer tech uh, at the end where i worked at the time and he um He's like, oh, yeah, if this had happened like uh, a week later, everything would have been backed up on Dropbox. Uh, the way it is, your hard drive is completely destroyed. Um, wow. They can uh, replace it for $2,000. And I was like, I don't have $2,000. And, you know, just I think that kind of kind of uh, played havoc with my sense of security. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that I was out $2,000. Did and- you lose – I mean, what what on there did you lose that it's like, oh, fuck, I don't have my book anymore? Well, or... that was, I mean, everything that I had, basically, that I was yeah. working on up to that point. Because, um, yeah, I'm a careless individual. And that was why this was such a long and, and uh, challenging and difficult book to write. Um, it's also a book that would not have been written uh, if I was not a careless individual. So that uh, so that was kind of terrifying. First, the, the possibility that, like, everything that I had yeah. would be gone. And then also, you know having to pay that much for what turned out to be. I mean, like, I really wasn't that happy with what I got from the first year, and it took a lot of editing and shaping and revisions and putting things in and putting things out before, you know, this started to feel like an actual book and not just the um, ramblings of a crazy man. <laughs> um, given hmm. your whole... Oh, we were going to say Oh, so, uh, so getting back to your... So um, 
so my wife couldn't come with me uh, to follow fish on tour. And that was really terrifying for me because she was my link to this world. Right. And she wasn't just my link to fish world. Like, she was my link to the world at large. You know, so I felt like I couldn't communicate with people. I felt like I was very isolated. Social, I- social anxiety kind yeah, of Yeah, oh, very much so. And I kind of felt like she can be my, you know, the person who, you know, <laughs> mediates between me and the world. And she's like, nah, I can't, I can't go. Like, and, she, you know, she was feeling fairly down uh, at the time as well, not going through a great period of her life. Um, and I don't think she realized what a bad state I was in. I don't think anybody around me necessarily mm-hmm. realized how broken I was inside, how, you know, a rack of anxiety, how, like, filled with doom. Um, Were you hiding it? No, I, mean, I, th- I really wasn't hiding it. I think it just took enormous effort to put on that front of like I can exist in the world right. you know and that took up all my energy and I thought like everybody could see through me and be like boy that Nathan's just barely holding on like something's seriously wrong with him um, but people just didn't I think in part just because like I don't know <laughs> kind of an odd person to begin with you know so it's kind of hard to know when you know your eccentric friend is you know just ex- being eccentric or when they're generally like spiraling down some yeah. rabbit hole Um so, and that actually proved to be one of the keys to being able to write this book was because I didn't have that distance between fish and ICP and my experiences anymore. You know, I wasn't writing about it through her eyes or mm-hmm. through my relationship with her. It was just this intense personal kind of connection. And in a weird sort of way, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, I felt uh, kind of avaricious over her memories. You know, like yeah. I wanted to make them mine. Like I was very, very did she resent obsessed that? with her. I think uh, on some level she did. You know, I think on some level she's kind of like, why are you trying to horn in on my childhood and my yeah. adolescence? You know, like these memories belong to me. Like I had my childhood. I had my adolescence. Like now I'm ready to let it go. And this was such a difficult book to write. I mean, I remember at one point her saying, like, I, I hate this book. I, I really, really hate this book. And it wasn't, you know, I hate what this book will be. It was, I hate what this book is doing to you. And I yeah. hate how miserable this book is making you. And I hate how hard this book is um, for you to write. Uh, and because she wasn't there, uh, <laughs> because there was no Jewish mother uh, inside inside, uh, inside me telling me to take care of myself and, and do things that were responsible, I ended up making a lot of staggering mistakes that I think led to very interesting passages. And yeah, I think um, had I not made so many mistakes, if I hadn't used drugs or, you know, hung out with disreputable people or like <laughs> gone on these bizarre detours, I would have written a book about a man who uh, sort of likes these shows and then goes to bed at 10 o'clock. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> interesting happens to him. Yeah. Yeah. I've read the boringest possible book about uh, Fish and the Insane Clown Posse. And that almost would be uh, – yeah, we're almost – be an achievement in itself. There's that moment that's so sad where you guys are at a show and she says, I miss my friends. And it just made me think how there's this idea that another person can be your whole world and that if you're with them, you won't ever feel alone. And yet that's not the reality, which is 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 just a, a sad truth, I think. Right, like, right, I, right. I fully can relate to, you know. Right. Yeah, and at that point too, I, there was something like very kind of obsessive and and possessive uh, about me at that time. And I feel like now we've kind of reached a point where, like, we both have our separate separate fish journeys and our separate fish memories, <laughs> and they're both kind of sacred and they're both kind of special and they both kind of belong to each of us individually. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's cool. I, I did a uh, I did a reading in Milwaukee. And uh, the golden child and, and uh, Kevin, Co- Kevin Corgan's doppelganger, as they're described in the book, uh, they were both there. And that was really, really nice because I remember, you know, when I saw them uh, at the fish show, 
being like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll reconnect in Boswell's uh, in the bookstore from like two years from now and uh, for the signing, and that'll be awesome. And again, it seemed very theoretical. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to write a book about fishing in the St. Cloud Posse, who, you know, <laughs> while I'm also writing a book about Weird Al. But, uh, but then it happened, and it was really, really sweet kind of reconnecting uh-huh. uh, with them and, and seeing that, you know, we have that, that shared history. And, you know, you just – you don't even really have to exchange words, you know. There's just that sense the that bond. You, yeah, that you that that fish bond, you know, <laughs> that you shared something, that it meant something to you, you know, that you were part of uh, a person's spiritual quest. And they were both also really happy with how they were portrayed in the book, which made me very happy because you know I wanted to write respectfully and then mm. I wanted to honor uh, the people that I was writing about. Um. So, given your your whole life, are you angry? Are you angry about uh, having been, you know, in the mental institution or growing up in a group home or anything like – or the foster family? Like, or what's your feeling about all that? No, I mean I think uh, I think I had a lot of anger and a lot of resentment and a lot of anxiety um, kind of leading up to this, to this book. And I think that was part of the thing that made it so difficult to write was, um, you know, I had all of this ambition. I think that that's part of it is, is part of the, what this book is about is the downside to ambition and this idea that you have to keep pushing yourself and driving and driving and driving and that you have to make everything a professional achievement and you have to make everything a professional success. Um, And I was very much in the mindset that unless I kept cranking out books and unless my books started making Scribner money, I was a failure as a writer and I was a failure as an author. And, you know, from like a cold, brutal standpoint, financial standpoint, like there's an element of truth to that. Did you sign a multi-book deal with them initially? No, I, uh, no, I mean I, I signed uh, – <laughs> the key to my literary career is that uh, I've gotten each book deal before the last one flopped. Oh. And Al didn't know uh, about how any of my books did. <laughs> he just knew that I was a weird dude who uh, had said nice things about him uh, and, and, and my book. Um, so, yeah, I think I um, – yeah, I think I had put all of this pressure on myself and that made life very hard mm-hmm. and that – contributed to my sense of self-loathing, to my anxiety, and kind of what I discovered was the less ambitious I was, the easier it was to be happy. And that if I took this pressure off myself to keep writing books or for the books to be successful or to, like, keep progressing uh, in the world, then that would be incredibly freeing. That's so in- that's yeah. so interesting. Like, I feel like I – so many people, but I'm mostly just talking about myself, could take that lesson <laughs> Because yeah, there's this yeah. feeling of like I, I'll get this incredible – it's like almost like a, a wave of frustrated ambition will come over me of like, oh, why am I not this or that or all these – you know, like I need to be more, more now. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and it's a very unpleasant feeling. Well, it's unpleasant but it's also so fucking human. Yeah. It's so endemic oh, to you. being a writer <laughs> and it's so endemic to being creative and wanting to say something. Even the, the, the act of being a writer or, or a performer, you're saying I have something so interesting and so valuable mm-hmm. that I should talk on a microphone so that my voice can be transmitted across the world or I should be given a microphone so that my voice is louder than everybody else's yeah. at this comedy club and everybody's looking at me and paying attention to me. Um, and I oscillate between, you know, these moments of like Zen serenity and feeling like, um, you know, I'm at peace with the world and having that angry ego and ambition kind of eating away at me. Yeah. And you say to yourself, like, I'm not going to check my Amazon rankings. It doesn't matter what this book sells. It's about, you know, making a connection with the fans. It's about telling a good story. It's that people like this. But then, you know, you're still on Amazon. And you're like, oh, why did that person say that thing about me? Mm-hmm. And I've gotten better at it. Um, but yeah, I still, <laughs> I, I have a ways to go before I uh, attain the level of Zen serenity, uh, to which I am aspiring to. 
Well, let me know when you get there and what it All feels right. like. Um, I think this will be a a rapid change of tone and direction, but I think we should do a quick Just Me or Everyone segment. Okay, GP Ron says, I have to stop the microwave before it hits zero and start ding- starts dinging, just me or everyone. Oh, yeah, I do that. In fact, I will convince myself that if, it, if I don't get there in time, like if I put 30 seconds on, which for, first of all, I would never do that. I would always do 31 or something. Um, if it actually goes all the way and dings, then like something bad's going to happen. Just a little fun game I like to play with myself. Oh, that's interesting. I uh... But then sometimes I get hoist on my own petard because let's say I set it for 31 and stop it at 1, then it's gone 30 seconds. And I, the whole point is trying to avoid this the 30 seconds. I realize this, this sounds crazy. No. <laughs> it's just I something totally, I do. I, totally, I mean, I totally have my own kind of obsessive compulsive uh, rituals. I had one of those that I, that I treasured uh, above all was right before I did anything ambitious, uh, I would – I would play the uh, the T-shirt song "Getting It." Uh, <laughs> you should be getting it, getting while the getting is good. Get it while you can. You should be okay. Now you got to pay T-shirt for that song. <laughs> um, and then whenever something really good would happen, uh, I would listen to the uh, Kanye West uh, song "Touch the Sky." Uh-huh. You kind of swagger about, and those were kind of my rituals. Um, that doesn't sound that OCD, though. Yeah, um, I mean, I do have a lot of I. Um, <laughs> For, man, for at least several years, one of my great joys in life uh, lied in uh, removing the dirt and the hair from the inside of my uh, computer keyboard, which was something that, I don't know, it gave me profound joy. And, wow. Like, I, I was creating... How would you do it? Uh, well, you, <laughs> like you get like a, uh, you get like a, um, what is that, like a paperclip, uh-huh. and then you like D. De- right. Yeah, and then you just kind of get in there, and then... There's this very appealing quality of like all this hair. It's and such stuff. a productive <laughs> thing that you love doing, though. Like, I wish. I it's wish kind it was like. Yeah. I feel so much stress until I get in the bathroom and really clean the tiles. I wish I was like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fine with them being dirty. Yeah, but I do. I've got my. I've got my own weird OCD quirks, but I don't know that that necessarily is one of them. All right, Tim Savis says, "I'll never. I. I've never put an oven mitt through the wash. Yeah, I never have either. I never thought about that." I um, have a <laughs> – I have had uh, washers and dryers. Um, washing machines? Yeah. I guess that is. Uh, what, what do you call them? The, the what clean the dishes? A dishwasher. Dishwasher. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Wordsmith. Uh, I have had a dishwasher uh, in my new home and then my last home. Literally never used it. Wow. I don't know why. And you know what it is? I like the physical act of washing dishes. Wow. Because I work with my mind all day and I write and I I never do anything physical. So when I have an opportunity to like mop my apartment or clean my dishes or organize things, like that is tremendously appealing to me. Yeah, my uh, fiancé tends to hand wash whereas I I, – I would put myself in the dishwasher if I could. That's how much I rely on the dishwasher. Yeah. I just don't like to – well, and there's Get something. All in there. There's something spiritually fulfilling about like this was dirty, and I'm making it clean mm-hmm. through my honest uh, labor and through you know literal elbow grease, right? And through honest exertion. I guess I just never trust that it gets as clean, and I never trust. It. Like I have to rinse things a bazillion times because right, soap residue right. is something I fear. Okay, <laughs> Burp. we all fear soap residue. We all should but fear soap residue. Humans. Yes, we all should. Okay. That is the primary uh, terror of juggalos. It's soap, not soap really. residue. Yes, <laughs> I think they're just afraid of soap. Burke Wilmore <laughs> says, "When I find a song I really like, I just don't hear the lyrics, 
and songs I love, I still don't know the lyrics at all. Okay, I can relate to that in that when I would write about bands, I always would look at the lyrics, and but then I would notice that on my own, that's not what I tended to gravitate. Like, I could like a song and realize I don't know what the lyrics are. You're not that way, though, right? You know, it's funny. I was never that way before uh, I started listening to Fish. And Fish is a band where um, I like a lot of their songs. I think they've got some really great songs. But it's instrumental, and it's about a feeling, and it's about an emotion, and it's about, you know, sort of taking you on a musical journey <laughs> more so than it is the lyrics, you know? So, like, some of my favorite Fish songs, like, I don't know the lyrics to necessarily. I don't even know the titles to it. Right. I just kind of like, you know, when you go to a show, and that, and that groove kicks in, man. <laughs> it all comes back to you. Uh, but I'm a huge, huge lyric guy. Um, yeah, to the point where one of my favorite albums of this last year uh, by a, a super group called the Demigods. And uh, I've listened to it like 30 times, and I'm probably going to go to online hip-hop lyric archive because there are like three or four lyrics where I'm not entirely sure what they're mm. saying, you know, like the meaning and the context. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go back and so I'll be able to understand exactly uh, what they were talking about. So I guess well, that that's kind of obsessive on the other side. I love that, though. I love loving something and then finding out what the actual lyrics are and then yeah, you get yeah, a whole yeah. new perspective. And, like, with, with Nirvana, it was kind of notorious for that, where, like, nobody knew what their lyrics were. Right. And, like, songs that I love, it's like, oh, wait, those lyrics were completely different, you know? Like, I was singing them wrong the entire time. Yeah. yeah. Woodlove says, there was a time in my life when I was excited to see a squirrel. Hmm. It's interesting. It suggests that he's no longer that way. It's true. And I think there are certain animals – I think that's sad. I think that's uh, an element of, of being a little down when things in your life that once brought you pleasure or joy uh, no longer do so. Yeah. And I'm in a state now where I just got a puppy. I just got a uh, – I got a Yorkie puppy. Uh-huh. So that brings me deliriously uh, – delirious levels of, 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 of delight. How uh, old is he? he is, he's about seven months old. He's named, he's named Ghostface. I have, um, I have a puppy who's seven months old. Oh, my God. But today – his name's Oliver. And the funny thing is that while you were talking about your period of being belligerent and like a, a like a teen who was acting out, right. part of me was listening, trying to get tips for how to handle my dog because mm. he's turned into a nightmare as of today. He was getting – I know this sounds ridiculous. Because <laughs> I was freaking out earlier because he was – first he started chewing on um, the wood around the window. Right, right. Which he – he hasn't really destroyed the – and, and we rent. So yeah, like yeah. I feel like we just said goodbye to our security deposit in a number of ways because of this dog. But he's just if he can't be out of if you are if you don't have your eye on him at all times, as of like today, as of this week, it's a new phase. He's in everything, like trying to get into the trash and um just being a little asshole and I kind of don't know what to do. Your dog hasn't isn't like that? No, and the uh I mean he's he's a little hellion, you know, he's a little do you uh what does your dog do during the day? Well, I t- see, the thing is I took him on a walk this morning. Right, right. So I-, I know that the answer is probably all of his destructive energy is coming from the fact that he has – or all of his destructive behavior is because he has too much energy to tire him out more. Yeah, yeah. But I did take him on a pretty long walk today and then he came back and he took a nap and then he woke up and was in a hell-raising kind of mood. But yeah, normally during the day he is um, – well, I-, I work in the evenings, so I'm with him. But a lot of the time I am at my computer – or, you know, like today it was that I was at the computer or I was – and then I was getting ready for work. Yeah, yeah. But I – so I should have had him confined in a, in the space with me. But it, I have been able – oh, and then he peed on the carpet right next to the pad. And I was like, he knows. He knows. The pad is right there. Right, he, right I don't right. know what he's doing. He's just being a jerk. Yeah, it's weird. Um, and I think the fact that uh, – <laughs> 
my whole thing is getting into new uh, experiences without really understanding them. So I love the hell out of ghosts. I have no idea how to take care of them. Like we're going to take them to, uh, I guess, military school no i'm gonna take him to like training classes at uh because like you you purchase this incredibly complicated you know elaborate thing and you have no idea how it works you know i think we've been figuring out ourselves but we're also we never deny him anything oh (laughs) you know good luck yeah well there were moments where like uh oh god he bit my nose because it was like lifting lifting him up and just his head was just like this whirring like motor and he's got like those like werewolf uh, teeth you know um, and I'm like, oh, God, no. And it was really painful when somebody yeah. know, bleeds, you know, cuts through the skin of your nose. Oh, jeez. And I'm always just like, oh, my God, Ghosty, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Like, why are you, you know, uh, where anything happens, like, I, we blame ourselves. Um, but he's, he's, a, he's, a little, he's a little amp, and I love the hell out of him, and I look at pictures of him throughout the day. Oh, I, I just, do They too. just make me very happy. And yeah. I, have, I have a vine, literally only, so that I can make videos of my, <laughs> my dog. And I'm pissed off that more people aren't uh, on my Vine looking at my adorable dog. Is it Nathan Rabin on Vine? Yes. yes I'm going to go there sign we go. up. I, I'm, uh, a, I'm a writer and I have a puppy. <laughs> and only one of those actually comes into play in all of my Vine videos. Is he house trained? Yes. Yes. How for did the most that part. happen? For the most part. Given this. Well, it was, it was, you know, kind of the first month was kind of like having a baby, you know, yeah. where we'd just get up every two hours and take him out and kind of. Try and, try. and again, it's <laughs> he's ninety five percent house trained, <laughs> which is good enough for us. Um, yeah, I mean, we also let him sleep in the bed with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so we um, yeah we have <laughs> he has a major uh, separation anxiety, and, and we do as well. So. <laughs> Yeah. Visalia Grown says, I sometimes notice myself slightly pursing my lips during kissing scenes on TV or in movies. Is it just me or everyone? I don't do that, but if I'm watching something and the person is upset, then I will have like a, a similar frowny face. Like as if I'm the person that they're talking to and I'm kind of like mirroring like, oh, that is tough. Or like I'll, if they're laughing, then I will smile. I, I've noticed that I do that with my face. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I wonder if that's kind of a reflective thing. You know, they say that. I think so, maybe. It's also a good acting uh, acting class uh, mm-hmm. thing to look at yourself in the same image there. Um, I don't have that. The weird thing that I have is a lot of times, especially when I'm writing, like I'm an incredibly animated writer where like I'll be living out what I'm doing while I'm writing it, you know, yeah. and like, I'll be laughing or I'll like be, you know, kind of physically doing what I was doing while I'm writing about what yeah, I was doing. And I do it's that kind too. Of, yeah. And I guess my wife's kind of amused by that, you know, uh, and it's a good thing for a writer to laugh at their own work. <laughs> Just you're either uh, a horrible narcissist and completely deluded or you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. I'm like little column A, little column B. Uh, Tony Dot says, feel compelled to weigh myself before and after going to the bathroom, slightly upset when the number doesn't change. Mm, I mean, not all the time, but sh- because why would you ever weigh yourself before going to the bathroom is kind of the point. You yeah. just wait till you get the benefit afterwards. But I do know what you mean. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I've not been on a scale in about uh, 10 years. Um, but something I do, and again, this goes back to being neurotic and, and obsessive and trying to tame your ambition, uh-huh. is uh, there are periods where I just would check on my Amazon every every hour <laughs> and then be like, oh, it's up, it's up 30. That means it's good. Oh, it's down 300. It's dead. It's up there. It's up there. So I think there is something uh, – and stocks were kind of the same thing where it's kind of nice to have things that you aren't obsessively looking at yeah. and obsessively concerned about. Yeah. You know, because that's – if you have that kind of obsessive OCD tendencies, like that can lead you down some weird places. Yes. Cat Meow 5. I don't like actors that try to be musicians and musicians that try to be actors. Oh, no one does. But <laughs> it's okay 
When musicians try to be actors, that's somehow more okay than actors trying to be musicians, i found. Very much so. And I can actually point to a whole lot of uh, musicians who are really, really fantastic actors. I mean, you know, to cite an unexpected example, I think uh, Diddy is a really funny guy and really engaging. And I'm like, oh, I'm excited to see Diddy in a movie. Terrible rapper. <laughs> like, but a, but a brilliant businessman and really funny in movies. I mean, there are all sorts of guys like that. Um, yeah, Frank Sinatra, uh-huh. hell of an actor. Will Smith, I just watched uh, Six Degrees of Separation. Uh, yeah, it works much, much better. Right. Um, yeah, because I think, you know, sort of musicians are already performers, already entertainers. Already yes, know how they're to... looser, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas with, yeah, I think they also face less hostility and less cynicism. And less right. Because like, I oh, think... oh, really, Jared Leto? Now you're a rock star. <laughs> But like, why you, you weren't getting laid often enough as it was? Like, yeah, it feels like you're cheating. Like, it's right. like oh, you're good looking. You get laid all the time. Why the hell do you have to be in like two like rocks? It's like when uh, John Mayer tried to be a stand up comedian. Ugh. Yes, like, that was a whole other bag altogether. But it's like, dude, like you're at like the apex of this. Like, why are you trying to like get it? You know, five minutes at the UCB. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're working way backwards, right. there, buddy. But what is it? It's because we expect that musicians have. They're authentic and they have somewhat of a hard scrabble existence, yeah. right? Whereas actors, we don't require that of them. Well, and also, I mean, like with uh, like Frank Sinatra, like as a singer, he is an actor. Like he is yeah. expressing these emotions really beautifully. He's you know uh, altering his voice. He's modulating it. There's like he brings out the emotions of all of these songs. It's like the song is a screenplay. And, um, you know, Nelson Riddle is a cinematographer and then Frank Sinatra turns it into a movie. So, yeah, I think it's a lot more uh, palatable uh, and reasonable uh, that way and rather than the other way around. All right. And finally, Marco Williams says, whenever people in the next apartment are drilling their wall, I worry that they will drill right through to my side. Hmm. Uh, maybe not that one specifically, <laughs> but I've definitely felt uh, unsettled by loud banging next door yeah i'm uh i guess i've been a homeowner for about three years um you feel a lot more invested sort of literally and, and metaphorically when you're a homeowner um <laughs> i still realize that i'm like the scourge of our condo association because <laughs> i like our building i want it to be good i you know i have a lot wrapped up in it but like when it comes to like i don't know routing or various terms i'm not even familiar with, like i don't care you know i'm not i'm not a real human i'm not a real adult <laughs> i'm just some lucky you know man child uh who, who you know got got into to owning um so yeah i i don't tend to to yeah be too invested in what the neighbors are doing that's good then i think yeah i think so yeah well nathan thank you so 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 oh, thank you for having <laughs> me. me much for doing my show um <clears throat> this is the absolute inopportune time for me to be having some kind of attack of phlegm. Oh, that's a-okay. It's totally gross. Hang on. Okay. So the book is You Don't Know Me, But You Don't Like Me. And you can get that uh, everywhere. Yes. But you could probably also get it at Amazon. And if you're going to get it at Amazon, why not click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It does not cost you anything extra, and it helps out the show. Oh, my goodness. What a delightful idea. What a win-win proposition really? for everybody. I know. Especially the people who read this delightful book. That's right. I really do. I can't recommend the book highly enough. And people can follow you on Twitter at Nathan Rabin. They certainly can. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, I will be at The Dissolve uh, starting July 10th. It's going to be really, really great. Great. And you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. You can follow Gary at G. Patrick Smith. Um, we have a ringtone that is available. And here it is. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, go fuck yourself. 
And you can get that on iTunes. Just search for Hey Go Fuck Yourself from the iTunes store from your iPhone. Um, all right. I love you guys. And, uh, and that is it. Thank you so much. Hey, do you know about the Alice and Rosen show? Digital.